0: Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection is the perfect Christmas gift for children, grandchildren, and godchildren ages 5 through 9. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. You can also purchase Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040, or issuesetc.org. The media is tone-deaf to the music of religion in daily life. It's pure, blunt, and I think pretty despicable politics to try to paint people of faith with the bigot label. And if they do that, then the IRS is empowered to take away the tax exempt status of religious organizations that disagree.
1: No one is worthless for whom Christ died. And of course, Christ died for all. We are not to make any distinctions based on social status or mental or physical ability or power or wealth or anything else. The gospel is the power of God into salvation for all who believe. The gospel is the power, not you making some decision. I tell you, Christ has decided for you. Believe it and it's yours.
0: Families putting up their manger scenes from the outdoor nativity store, love, issues, etc., it appears that the sexual revolution has entered a new phase it's gone from well maybe simple things like redefining monogamy or redefining marriage those seem so quaint and simple to redefining the self and how has the church sad to say in some cases compromised with this phase of the sexual revolution greetings and welcome to issues etc live on this friday afternoon december the 9th i'm todd wilkin Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be talking about the church's compromise with the sexual revolution. Dr. Carl Truman of Grove City College will be our guest. We'll spend some time with Dr. Aaron Cariotti discussing lessons learned from the pandemic. He's author of the new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And then it's this week in Pop Christianity Today, The Marks of a False Prophet, Pastor Chris Rosebro, fighting for the faith, will be our guest. Dr. Carl Truman is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's author of several books, including Strange New World and the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and a recent column for the Wall Street Journal titled The Church of the Sexual Revolution. Dr. Truman, welcome back.
1: It's great to be back. Thanks for having me.
0: How are nearly all Christian denominations experiencing the latest phase of the sexual revolution?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's hard to generalize in terms of every single denomination because the emphases and the pressure points will differ from church to church. But I think there are a number of issues that all denominations are having to address in, in some way. Uh, one of them is the, the marriage issue, whether marriage is between one man and one woman for life, except in the most extreme circumstances, or whether it's something that can be contracted between two people of the same sex. Secondly, I think there is the the gender issue, to what extent is manhood, womanhood, or male and female, to what extent are they fixed, biologically grounded categories, and to what extent uh, are they socially constructed? So those, I think, are the two big issues that all denominations are going to be facing in some shape or form, both at a denominational level and quite probably uh, on the ground at a, a local pastoral level as well.
0: How are the debates dividing Christians and denominations today different from the biblical debates of the early 20th century?
1: Well, there's some commonality, I think, in that all of the the debates of the 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 so-called fundamentalist modernist controversy of the early 20th century and the debates about sexuality and gender we're having today, they all track back to biblical authority. So they share that in common, but where they differ is this. I think that the debates of the early 20th century were, by and large, in-house debates within churches. They were of little public consequence. They were debates about things such as did Christ rise physically from the dead? Well that's an important debate to have within the church, but one's opinion on that is really of very little interest to wider society. Today we're having debates about things like marriage, gender, sexual identity, uh, the legitimacy of certain kinds of sexual desires and practices. These are not only debates internal to the church, but they're also debates that have significant implications for the public life of the church and the lives of Christians in wider society. So we might say the culture is far more interested and has far more invested in these debates within the church than was the case in the early 20th century.
0: You say that the terms of belonging to a civil society have changed. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, it's, that's really an expansion of my, my second answer. I think what we're looking at, well, when you think about America, why was America successful for so long? Well, it has freedom of religion. It was able to successfully carve out a public square, which didn't directly involve denominational politics. And the reason it could do that was that the the terms for being considered a decent, loyal member of American society were... Issues of morality over which there was profound consensus. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson was not a Trinitarian Christian, but he and John Witherspoon, for example, would have shared a, a basic agreement on what public morality was. There was a, a moral imagination that permeated the whole of American society that was shared by Christian and non-Christian alike. We now have a situation where there is no shared moral imagination binding society together, and what that means is that the kind of issues of sexuality, gender, etc., that I've already alluded to, that these now are pressured issues in the in the public square, and if you want to be a decent member of society, then you better go along with the consensus. On gay marriage or the consensus on gender because if you don't you're going to be labeled a deviant a bigot somebody who is seditious or subversive of society you're going to be seen as somebody who needs to be excluded or at least pushed to the very margins
0: how did that attitude that particular kind of redefining of membership in a civil society find its way into Christian churches
1: Well, I think the the simple answer to that is that no Christian is simply a member of the church. We also live in the wider world. We watch the television. We surf the web. The influences that shape the imagination of wider society are precisely the same influences that can shape the imaginations of of individual Christians. And so I think that the simple answer is we're not immune to the same kind of forces that have been shaping... uh, modern society and when you add to that the fact that the church is one of the the, the downside of religious freedom if you like is that the church's authority is profoundly weakened and we all choose the church we go to and that means that there's a tendency in the church uh, and a need perhaps to to cater somewhat towards the things that the public will tolerate so i think there are various things at play that tilt christians as individuals, and perhaps churches as as organizations that tilt them or put pressure on them to conform with the mores and the morality of wider society.
0: Were the seeds of today's sexual revolution that obviously now includes every form of sexual deviancy, were they contained within the revolution from the very beginning?
1: Yes, I think so. On two levels. One, uh, as soon as you you're You know, the moral imagination of society shifts towards uh, thinking of sex not so much as the seal on a unique lifelong relationship and as something that is primarily, though as a Protestant I would say, not exclusively procreative in purpose. As soon as you shift away from thinking of sex as those things and start to think of it as a way of self-affirmation or recreation, then really you're starting to move away from thinking of sex as having an intrinsic morality. And towards thinking of sex as something where the morality is provided by the context, the context of consent in which it takes place. And that means that the things that traditionally marked uh, legitimate sexual activity, the institution of marriage, the physical complementarity of, of men and women, these things are no longer sacrosanct. They no longer apply. Secondly, the other aspect of the sexual revolution, I think, which contained the seeds of this later, later developments, was the technological aspect of it. Easy access to contraception and antibiotics uh, facilitated the way in which we were able to think of sex as something that didn't have to take place within a context of mutual responsibility, within an ongoing relationship, and could be something that could be isolated to a one-night stand with no consequences. So I think both in terms of how we conceptualize the meaning of sex and how we have developed technology to facilitate sex, both of those things point to the what I would describe as the unraveling of sexual morality that we're witnessing at the moment.
0: I'm curious also about kind of a chicken and egg scenario, were the politics of identity that we see around us, and you'll need to define that, were they there from the beginning or is that something that has evolved out of the sexual revolution or is it a political phenomenon that has imposed itself on the sexual revolution?
1: Um, I I think it is a a chicken and egg scenario. You know, it's not something you point to and say this single thing causes. Well, what are the politics of identity? The way I would use the phrase is the politics of identity, uh, politics where issues start to emerge that are less to do with what we might call the old understanding of tribe or nation and more to do with emerging identities such as racial identity or an identity of sexual orientation or of gender. And Typically, uh, is, is attached to the consciousness of a group or the, or the self-understanding of a group that sees itself as having been marginalised, oppressed, or kept out of the mainstream by dominant political groups. So, the politics of identity today, I would say, LGBTQ stuff, race, etc. And I think this ties in very much with the emerging understanding of, of say, sex in the 20th century when sex uh, ceased to be so much an activity and became and this was really freud was the man who who accomplished this and came to be seen more of in terms of desire when we started to be preoccupied with our inner psychological lives and our feelings of psychological happiness these things are fertile soil for the politics of identity then I think when you bring the, the sort of the macro picture and you say, well, in the West, when you have high degrees of affluence, when the old economic debates sort of start to pass away, what fills the vacuum? Well, politicians have to find constituencies that will vote for them. They have to appeal to certain groups. And the language of victimhood, the idea of victimhood is very, very powerful. And if you can persuade a group that they're a victim and that you will help them address their victimhood, then that's a very marketable strategy from a politician or a political party. So I think there are various aspects uh, to it, but the politics of identity is both it both rises from the ground, if you like, and it's facilitated and empowered by politicians at the top.
0: Dr. Carl Truman is our guest. We're talking about the church's compromise with the sexual revolution. When we return, how has this new politics of identity set the stage for what Dr. Truman calls both an external culture war and an internal civil war? This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. For the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived.
1: Truth? Freedom. Vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. Cuchicago.edu.
0: The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December is Arch Books Treasury Christmas Collection, a collection of 12 children's books for Christmas. Ages 9 through 5 appropriate. Find out more about this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order Archbooks Treasury, Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040. We're talking with Dr. Carl Truman about the church's compromise with the sexual revolution. You say that this new politics set the stage for both what you call the external culture war and an internal civil war. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think the politics of identity, what you have at the moment, of course, is society structured around the old idea of the nation state. And we now find that within the the nation state, competing identities, it used to be, I think, one could say that the idea of being an American was fundamental and powerful, so that however else uh, Americans thought of themselves, the idea of being an American... Bound them together, and there were certain things that that would lead to in in wider society, such that when, when there was a democratic election and one side uh, lost and the other side won, the losers would would accept the victory because it you know, would accept that the other side had won because it was part of what uh, bound America together with the last several elections we 've seen significant pushback from the losing parties relative to the the final result. And that's, I think, indicative of the fact that the notion of being an American is, is no longer as strong, let's say, as, as the notion of being a person of color or the notion of being uh, a member of the LGBTQ alliance. We're seeing these new identities coming through and, and beginning to squeeze out the older, more traditional identities. And as I mentioned earlier, this plays out in the church as well, because the church is not immune to the tensions, the conflicts that are uh, racking and stressing the the wider world. So within the church, we're seeing uh, battles over which identities should be recognized, whether certain categories of secular identity can legitimately be recognized by Christians. And and I think it all comes down to the, the fragmenting nature of this politics, this psychologized politics of identity.
0: You cite briefly in your Wall Street Journal piece the breakup of the United Methodist Church that's underway and largely what's happening there is that congregations are leaving the United Methodist Church. It's kind of a war of attrition where the United Methodist Church, post this exodus, is going to be substantially more favorable to the sexual revolution. What are your thoughts there?
1: Well, I think You're absolutely correct. I think what remains of the UMC will be considerably more favorable to LGBTQ things, but will also be considerably weaker as a denomination. And the whole scenario was a classic example of how the leadership of the church has really lost touch with a lot of what grassroots boots on the ground Christians believe. And I think the contempt that is being shown often by church leadership for the, you know, the, sort of the great unwashed who actually hold to the basic tenets of Christian orthodoxy is, I think it's appalling, and I do think the church will be fundamentally weakened and damaged as a result, and not just the United Methodist Church, but all denominations that are going through this kind of convulsion uh, at the moment.
0: How are the problems for Christian institutions of the 21st century? Really a crisis in our understanding of man?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. One could spend hours talking about that. But I mean, just think specifically of the sexual revolution. What is the traditional understanding of, of sex? The traditional understanding of sex is it's, it's something that takes place between a man and a woman within the context of marriage, certainly with an orientation towards the production of children. What does that tell us about sex? Well, it tells us that it plays into a vision of what it means to be human that places responsibility and dependency right at its heart. The man who gets the woman pregnant in that world has a responsibility towards the woman. The man and the woman have a responsibility towards the child that's been produced. What well, the sexual revolution has done, of course, by untethering sex from marriage and reproduction has has really played into a notion of of men and women as fundamentally free, unencumbered, and independent and that 's an anthropological move that 's not simply so the sexual revolution isn 't simply a question of well, certain things were considered to be wrong in the past, and we consider them okay now. The question is, why do we consider them to be okay now? And I would argue that we can only consider them to be okay now if we fundamentally change their understanding of what it means to be a human being. You know, it's 80 years ago next year that C.S. Lewis gave the lectures that became his little book, The Abolition of Man. I would urge anybody listening to this program who hasn't read that book to get hold of it and read it. Or if you have read it, read it again. It's amazing how prescient Lewis is. What he's witnessing in the 1940s, before the sexual revolution, is the dismantling of the notion of what it means to be a human being, and the sexual revolution has only supercharged and accelerated that. We are living at a point in time where the big question is not whether you can define a woman. That is a function, a problem created by a deeper problem, and the deeper problem is can you define what it means to be a human being?
0: What is the future? You mentioned the United Methodist Church, but what is the future of those churches that have embraced the sexual
1: revolution? I hope it is very bleak. I mean, history tells us that those churches that simply go along to get along with whatever the tastes of the culture are, whether it's issues of disbelief in the miraculous or, at this point, disbelief in God-given moral structure of human nature— History teaches us that those churches very quickly become bland, they become pale echoes of the world around them, and they start to hemorrhage members and distinctiveness very, very quickly. So I think the the future for such churches is bleak. Bottom line is the world always does the world in a much more compelling fashion than the church does. Why would I go to church? To be given a mediocre version of the message that I can get from the television by switching it on in a far more entertaining fashion each night. So I think the future for churches that abandon the faith is bleak. I also think they'll come under judgment. Uh, New Testament uh, tells us on several occasions God opposes the proud. If you are so confident that God is wrong and society is right, then I'm afraid. That's an act of pride, and we're told in the New Testament what God does to those who are proud. He opposes them.
0: How do Orthodox Christians and churches withstand the ridicule and the hostility of both a sexualized state and a sexualized church?
1: It's going to be hard. I think, first of all, they have to teach the whole counsel of God. Uh, One of the problems particularly Protestants face at the moment is because for so many years, The culture basically had a Protestant morality. The Protestant churches were very lazy in in actually thinking about how to teach biblical morality and grounding it in a, in a, a total view of what the world is like. So I think, first of all, we need to think about how we teach the whole counsel of God, how we teach ethics and morality. Secondly, I think we need to prepare people for the ridicule that's going to come. If you oppose uh, same-sex marriage, for example, you're not going to be laughed at in the way that perhaps somebody in the early 20th century who affirmed the resurrection was laughed at. You're going to be spat upon as a bigot. In the early 20th century, belief in the supernatural, people thought you were an idiot. Today, rejection of the, of the sexual and gender orthodoxy that's emerging in our culture will get you branded a bigot. That's a much more painful and uncomfortable place to be. And thirdly, that brings me to the point that churches need to be strong communities. We need to stand together on this. We need to have churches where everybody is supporting everybody else. And that means we can't just turn up on a Sunday, hear the word preached, take the Lord's Supper and go home. There have to be true, strong Christian friendships and communities within the Christian world because we need mutual support. And then, of course, last but most important, we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't lose hope. We must remember that the promise of victory goes to the church in the end. And that is brought about not by our efforts but through God's work by the Holy Spirit. So we, we need to be calling out to the Lord for his Holy Spirit depending upon His Holy Spirit at this
0: point. Dr. Carl Truman is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He's a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's author of several books, including Strange New World and The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and a recent column for the Wall Street Journal titled The Church of the Sexual Revolution. You can read it and purchase Dr. Truman's books at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Truman, thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: We're going to spend some time with Dr. Aaron Cariotti on the other side of the break. He's author of the new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. We're going to discuss lessons learned from the pandemic. Stay tuned. Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection is the perfect Christmas gift for children, grandchildren, and godchildren ages 5 through 9. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. You can also purchase Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, Archbooks Treasury Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040, or issuesetc.org. Making disciples for life across the nation, students are back in school in over 1,800 schools serving children in early childhood through high school. Students are thriving in programs of excellence in a safe, caring Christian environment taught by dedicated teachers. To find a school in your community, visit lcms.org/schools. Connect today for information about a Lutheran school for the children in your family at lcms.org/schools. What does it mean to be a man? The December issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the question of anthropology. And for us as Lutherans, understanding what man is and who man is begins first and foremost with understanding who Jesus is and what he has done, how he is the perfect man. Pick up your copy today by visiting cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
1: Talk radio for the thinking Christian. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not only does our church need men right now, but the world needs men who will proclaim the gospel in its purity.
0: Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Peter Scare, Associate Professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana.
1: If when you go to sleep at night you're thinking about it, My experience with it is this, is that thought won't go away. So if you're going to bed at night thinking about following our Lord and becoming a preacher of this gospel, then I would love if you could come and visit Fort Wayne, our campus. We'd love to show you around and show you what it is that we do.
0: Have you ever considered becoming a pastor? Contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Christ-centered, cross-focused Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana.